Welcome to This Academic Life, episode 54. This episode is sponsored by the Academic Life Faculty Development Workshops, a series of free in-person and online events that are designed for those already in or seeking to enter academic careers in STEM fields. The next workshop will be in person on July 23rd, 2023, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. If you are interested, please find the details of the workshop and the registration link in the show notes. Hi, my name is Kim Michelle Lewis. I am a professor of physics and associate dean of research. Hi, I'm Pania Newell. I'm a professor of mechanical engineering. Today, we are joined by Stephen Centuria, Professor Emeritus of Electrical Engineering from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He is one of the founders of the Academic Life Faculty Development Workshops. Steve, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. This episode is the first of two on the general topic of publishing. We've entitled them Wisdom from a former journal editor. Perhaps you could say a few words about your experience as an editor? I'm happy to. I spent 36 years on the faculty at MIT, and for about half those years, I was an associate editor on two different journals. The experience of being an editor, of course, depends on also being an author, and I've done my share of writing. I have almost 100 refereed papers in journals and almost 200 papers in conferences. So I've done a lot of writing of papers and I've also done a lot of editing of papers for these journals. We've already had four episodes about the Academic Club workshops. How does this one fit in? Well, the workshops are designed to help individuals face what might be difficult steps on the ladder to academic success. The first unit that we do is about the tenure process. Uh, we haven't, in fact, covered that on these podcasts because it's too long a unit to fit. But the second component of this issue about tenure is publications, because as we all understand, publications are a key component of successful tenure cases. And so we have a unit in which essentially I give a lecture entitled Why and How to Get Published. And it has three basic topics why publish, uh, how to write good papers, and how to respond to peer reviews. I guess we all know that publishing is a very important part of our academic success. You mentioned why publish. Isn't that obvious? Well, this is where I have some fun when I give this lecture, because the idealistic answer to that question is we publish to share knowledge. We publish to contribute to the knowledge and to the science and to make the world a better place and all of those good things. And of course, anyone who is trying to survive in an academic career knows that that's only half the answer. Publications are also what it takes to get a promotion and therefore being able to write good papers and get them published is an essential component of academic success, independent of whether you're actually making an important contribution to science. So is there any specific publication strategy that you recommend to faculty? Yeah, it's an interesting problem because there are two components of getting your work out. One is speed 
and one is visibility. You want people to know what you've done, partly to protect your career, but partly to actually advance what people are working on. When you think about, for example, the incredible speed with which the Moderna-style vaccines for COVID were developed, it depended on sharing information quickly. And so speed was extremely important. But when it comes to documenting your own personal contributions, visibility is also important. You want to be sure that the work is recognized as your contribution. So when the time comes to judge your suitability for an academic career, you're recognized as a contributor. It matters. So typically, when I am guiding my graduate students or the postdoc and Most often they say they're kind of stuck. Uh, They are not sure exactly where to start. I give them the standard operating procedure, right? Which is I start with the statement of the problem, define the problem, tell them why this is different from all other peer-reviewed journals that you read. You describe your methods and make sure you're using all of the technical words talk about the results, you you plot, make beautiful plots with your error bars and you have a beautiful legend and then you discuss. So Steve, tell us what is your secret? Well, it's an interesting thing. First of all, just to mention get, getting back to this issue of speed and visibility, the, the, the fastest way to get your work out is to go to a conference. And I have more to say on that, but but you asked about this issue of What's my secret sauce? I used to have to travel to Japan a fair amount. And those are very long flights and you can think a lot. And so one of these days while flying over Alaska and looking at Denali at Mount McKinley uh, off on the horizon, it suddenly struck me that there's a guiding principle for organizing a scientific paper that makes a great deal of sense. I call it the believability index. Uh, I wrote those notes out on a pad of paper while I was on that airplane ride, and I kept them for a number of years. And then it occurred to me that I should probably write them up. It got published as an editorial in the Journal of Microelectromechanical Systems. And darn it, it's the most quoted paper I think I ever wrote, because it tells people how to write good papers. And the idea is called the Believability Index. That's what I came up with. The paper, by the way, is called How to Avoid the Reviewer's Acts. And uh, I make it freely available. It's on my website. It'll be in the link will be in the program notes. You're welcome to get the full article. I actually have seven maxims in that article. I'm only going to talk about a couple of them. But the believability index is really the central thing. But before you get to that, there's another one that I call Almost Nothing is New. And Kim, you, you said something about this, how you have to go and make sure you understand what was there before you did your paper. And that I thoroughly agree with. And you need to do literature searches and literature searches are hard. And <clears throat> I'm gonna presume that authors of papers have done their work and they've done their literature search and they do have some, at least some understanding of what they're adding to the literature. But then how do you put it out in the paper? And I say, write in the order of decreasing believability. 
And what does that accomplish? Well, the title of the paper remembers how to avoid the reviewer's acts. You want your reviewer to understand your work so thoroughly that they say, publish as written. Now that rarely happens. Most of the time when we submit journal papers, we get suggestions for revision. But we want those suggestions to be constructive, not destructive. And in order for them to be constructive, it's important for the author to know where did the reviewer go off the tracks as far as my paper was concerned. And so if you assign a believability to the components of the paper, and Kim mentioned several of them, uh, your methods, uh, the prior work, established theoretical concepts, well-known results, all of these things are highly believable. And then you have data, a new measurement. Well, that is less believable so far, but at least it's new. And you can explain how you got the measurement. You can explain all of the components of getting that measurement. But new results are intrinsically less believable than old results that have been vetted. And another believability issue is speculation about what the results mean, interpretation, applying new theories, applying models. What you want to do is structure your paper so that as the reviewer goes through it, they say, yeah, I believe that. Yeah, I believe that. Oh, I have a problem with this. And you know exactly where the reviewer's question might come from. And it permits you, when the time comes to do a revision, to respond in an intelligent way. So the guidelines appear to seem not to be hard. I feel like I have subconsciously done everything you said (laughs) without putting the buzzwords to it. Like you said, the believability factor. And I think when I hear you say this, because I'm so closely tied to the work, I feel like I always do that. I'm always have that believability factor and write in this way. But tell us a little bit, is it really difficult to follow these guidelines? Hardest thing to do is to avoid over-interpreting your results until you have them all out. There's a tremendous tendency on the part of many authors to give a result and tell a story and give another result and tell another story and give another result and tell another story. And I will tell you from my experience as an editor, reviewers hate that because when you do an interpretive comment, before the full spectrum of your results are presented, the reviewer doesn't know exactly what are you basing that conclusion on? Is it just this data or are there things that you're going to tell me later that'll help explain why it is you got this interpretation? So it takes a lot of discipline to do it, even though conceptually it's very simple. But I agree, it's simple, but it's hard to do because it requires discipline. I have another related issue, which is by the time you get to the point where you're ready to interpret your data, you have some result, new measurements, new something, and you want to assign a meaning or an interpretive um, 
layer onto your discussion. Very often authors say, it's probably true that, and then they make a statement. I call that gambling words. And you should not use gambling words in scientific writing. Because if you have to use probably or undoubtedly or certainly as part of your exposition, you are on thin ice because it, you have a sense internal to you that you can't persuade without those words. And that means you have a problem. A colleague of mine, Arthur Smith, was the one who pointed this out to me because I had written a paper in which I used the word undoubtedly. And he said, you shouldn't do that. And I submitted the paper anyway. And it got published. And the undoubtedly was wrong. Wrong. It wasn't undoubtedly anything. It was something else, which we finally figured out later and had to comment, by the way, that previous paper was in error. So avoid gambling words. Probably, definitely. You really don't want to do that. Yeah, another word that I was told by my faculty advisor not to use was precisely. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> or novel. <laughs> Although there are occasions where novel is appropriate. Mm. I used novel in the title of one paper uh, in my however many hundred of papers because it really was novel. Every once in a while it happens, once in a career maybe. So you've told us about a lot of things, uh, the believability factor, the gambling words. Is there anything else we should know? Because Panya, probably between the two of us, we still have not met half of the number of papers that you've written. <laughs> and... and I would like to believe that I'm going to get there. <laughs> well, I'm a lot older than you. <laughs> the thing that is often the most difficult of all is to place your work correctly in the context of prior work. Literature searches, as I've said, are difficult. Conference papers in particular are often hard to review and find. And so there may be work out there that you just don't know about. But if you do an earnest job and you collect the literature, you're going to write an introductory paragraph. And to my dismay, authors use those to attack other people. And that is the dumbest single thing you can do in writing a paper is to attack someone before you've even presented anything new. Because the person who's likely to review your paper is the person you're attacking. So don't do it. Be courteous. Explain the prior work. Give it credit. And then say, and we have this new insight or result or extension or contradiction even of prior work. And then you go ahead and you write in the order of decreasing believability. And even as you get to the end of the paper, it's perfectly okay to speculate, thoroughly speculate. I think this might mean something important, da, da, da. That's fine, because you're already at the, you've, you've, you're down the believability trail. You can be as unbelievable as you want. But then you have a responsibility to cycle back to the literature you cited 
and make clear at the end of your paper how it is that what you have done has in fact added to the literature, has shifted our state of knowledge. This is hard. Some people do it very well. A lot of people do it in a very cursory way. They develop a laundry list of references at the beginning, but then they don't go back at the end and show how their work connects to the prior work. Yeah, I also noticed that many people, they provide laundry list of these boring sentences, at least in my opinion, that so-and-so-on did this, so-and-so-on did this, and there are just like, they don't even elaborate on what's the relationship. If they did it, what's the purpose? Why you are saying? So they feel like when I read it, I feel they were obligated to mention these people, whether they were leaders or they published or they guess that they would be a reviewer. So they put their name and they say, oh, they did this. They did that. They did that. And it's obvious that they are just trying to make them happy. And as you said, then towards the end, they don't cycle back like, well, so-and-so-and did this. Our work is built upon their all the work that they did for years or based on their specific paper. And we add these tiny, I don't know, advancement or this huge advancement. So that really bothers me when I read introductions that I feel it's not part of the story. It's just like choppy, choppy sentences <laughs> without any connection to the whole big story. Or I need to dig through to figure out what is the connection? Why are you mentioning this so-and-so-and's work? Well, what you're describing is bad writing. It's possible to do that exactly what you say by writing well. And what do I mean by writing well? You know what your paper is trying to accomplish. So as an author, you should organize the prior literature comments so that it highlights what you're doing. If you write well, that happens very easily. But if you're doing what you describe, Panya, the laundry list, yeah, you turn a lot of people off and you don't accomplish anything. Imagine you were giving a lecture to a, a seminar and you wanted to explain your work. You would not start your seminar with a laundry list of irrelevant people. You would start only with the most important background information that's needed to understand what you have done in this new work. And if you use that as a thinking model, and possibly expand it a little bit to include seminal works that are prior to the work you're citing. I think you can do a fine job though. So Steve, I have a question. One of my biggest fears, uh, typically when I write that introduction and I'm putting everything in the context of my own work, I often worry that I'm gonna miss a reference. Sometimes I can spend so much time just making sure I have all of the relevant papers that are related, and I often worry about missing a reference. Do you have any advice for just overcoming that fear factor, or let's just say you did miss one? <laughs> any advice? Has that ever happened to you that you would care to tell us your experience about? <laughs> First of all, it happens to everybody. It's not unique to you. The literature searching process has become extremely difficult because literature is vast. So I would go under the assumption that you may have missed a relevant paper 
but if you've cited enough of the prior work to explain where you're starting from and you miss something important and the reviewer who reviews your paper is competent. Now, those are two ifs. The reviewer will tell you and you'll fix it. That's part of what the review process is about, is to catch things that should have been caught. And if you don't catch them all, you're not an evil person. You're just doing your best. And doing your best is fine, as long as you do it honestly. It certainly has happened to me that I've missed references, especially conference papers. Conference papers can cause troubles. They're not indexed the same way as journals. And sometimes it's hard to find. So don't be afraid. Do a good job, submit the paper. And then if a reviewer comes back and says, hey, you missed a reference, you say, thank you. But if you are lucky, there was one case that we missed a reference. It was one of the paper by the editor. And he did not even send it for the review. He said, if you don't know my work, you don't ever come back. We were shocked because we thought that it wasn't fair. And he just took it personally. He said that he was really excited about the work because 50 years ago, he published in that area, but not after that. And he did not send it to the review. Well, we submitted it to another journal, but we learned a lesson in a really hard way. And it was a very honest mistake. Not everyone is a saint, but I think you've also demonstrated something that's really very important, which is that for most students, the length of time the universe has been here is between 10 and 15 years. And any work done more than 10 or 15 years ago is automatically presumed to be irrelevant. And that means that as a supervisor of students, you need to be prepared to push on them to ask, have you looked at older work? I once went to a conference in which a student presented with great excitement a result about how a particular circuit worked. I won't go into the details of it, but the, the theory of that was published by Vanderpoel in 1927. And I was in the very uncomfortable position in that conference of having to alert the student that this work was actually done in 1927 and was, for those of us involved in understanding how marginal oscillators worked, that everybody knew that stuff. It was a very uncomfortable thing. The student was very upset uh, with me and with uh, very ashamed. But 1927 is kind of tough. It's a tough standard. Uh, this was a, let's see, that must have been, it was at least 50 years old at the time, the paper. So a similar kind of problem. It does happen. I think the hardest thing is to find what you've done in the library. I used to tell my students, figure out what you've done and then go to the library and find it. Because somebody did something similar Close, maybe the same, maybe a little different, but it's there. Go find it. And sometimes they do. Thank you, Steve, for sharing your words of wisdom regarding publishing with our audiences. In our next episode, we will continue this discussion with Professor Centuria, focusing on peer review. 
If you have any comments, thoughts, please write to us and let us know. If you attend the workshop in Albuquerque on July 23rd, 2023 in person, you will be able to participate in this discussion with many like-minded people. Thank you so much for listening and we hope you enjoyed this conversation. You can follow us on Facebook and listen to our latest episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, or Google Podcasts. If you're interested in being a sponsor, then please contact us at sponsor at thisacademiclife.org. Join us next time for the good, the bad, and the ugly of this academic life.